time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for the movement, for your activity, for your power, for your presence in this movement here, God. I thank you for so many young disciples that love you so much. I thank you for their passion to share their faith with their friends. Thank you for the prayer movement that's erupting here. And God, we ask that you would do something supernatural, that you would work in power. We love you and we honor you. And everybody said amen. 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 All right. Matthew chapter six. Last week, we talked a little bit out of Matthew six, and we talked about how Jesus said that he does reward people that fast that there is an actual reward for fasting. And a lot of times when people think of fasting and they think of what Jesus had to say about fasting, they only think that Jesus criticized the wrong motive. And Jesus did criticize the, right mo- the wrong motive, but Jesus says there's gonna be a reward for those who do it with the right motive. And if there's a right if there's a right motive and there's a reward, we want to be the people to get that reward. If you're, if you're with me and you say you want that reward, raise your hand. I just want to see it. You're in? All right, good. So we want to be a people that say, if there's more available, if there's a spiritual reward available, we're not going to use anything to discredit and say, count us out. We want to do the opposite. We want to take Jesus at his word and say, count us in. We want whatever is available, whatever God wants to give, we want it. And so in Matthew 6, 16, Jesus says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil, and that's interesting right there, when you fast, but when you fast, Jesus has expectation that, the, that we're going to fast. People that are Christ followers are going to fast. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Tonight I want to talk about a guy named David. David in the Old Testament. And uh, there's a peculiar story that I'm going to take you to in 2 Samuel 12. But before we go there, before we go to this Old Testament story about this man David, I want you to be convinced that David was a man of fasting. All right, so most of you, when you think of David, you think of the little guy that killed the giant. True. Some of you think about a guy who avoids spears. True. All right? Some of you th- still think about a, a small vegetable killing a big pickle. All right? You got to step out of that. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> oh, God help us. All right, so. All right, so you have images in your mind when I say, when I say David. But... Apart from being a giant killer, apart from being a king, apart from being a guy who slays a pickle, I want you for a moment to recognize as we look at the scriptures that David was a man of fasting. Look at the person next to you and say fasting. Fasting. Say fasting. Fasting. David was a man of fasting. All right, here we go. Buckle up. Everybody get your seatbelt. Go like this. Here we go. There, buckle up. All right, here we go. Psalm 35. Psalm 35, this is a Psalm of David. And David in Psalm 35, verse 13, he's actually, he's actually fasting for his friends. Okay, so not only does he fast, but in Psalm 35, 13, David is fasting for his friends. In Psalm 69, 8, David fasts because he has zeal for God. 
And Psalm 69.80 says, I'm a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's own sons. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. So David's a man of fasting. David fasts for his friends in Psalm 35. David fasts because he's got zeal for God in Psalm 69. Psalm 109, David is fasting for himself. Verse 24, he says, my knees give way from fasting. So he's just fasting for himself. He just needs God. He just wants God for his own heart. So number one, he's fasting for his friends in Psalm 35. In Psalm 69, he's fasting just because just he wants God's kingdom. He just want, he's got zeal for God's house. That means he wants God's agenda on the planet. And then the third one, in Psalm 109, David's fasting for himself. He's just like, I just need God. I need me, David. I need God. So before we get to this story in 2 Samuel, you've got to recognize the reality that David is a man of fasting. And when you read through the Psalms, you find this is a part of his lifestyle. He's got a habit, spiritual habit. David is a man of fasting, which I find is interesting because you rarely hear about that. We, we mostly only hear about the high accolades, the high stories, the great victories. Veggie Tales is yet to make a movie about David not eating food. <laughs> right? But inherent in the great man of God, connected to the guy who does slay giants, to the guy who does become king, to the guy who does do great exploits, Acts 13, 36, that David fulfilled God's purpose in his own generation. And most of us think, oh, he did great things. But David, in the interior secret place, in addition to the exterior great things, he was a man of fasting. So let's go into this story. We're going to enter the scene. It's a very dramatic scene. I mean, it's like an epic movie. Because David has become king. And in the story here, David is the king of Israel. And David commits adultery. David then gets this woman, Bathsheba, pregnant. David then has her husband, Uriah, killed on the battle line so that he can marry her. And then a prophet named Nathan shows up. This guy, Nathan, comes to David. And basically, he gives him an analogy where he says, he, says, he gives him a, a whole kind of different story as a, for David to not know exactly that he was talking about David. And then Nathan looks at him and says, the man who I'm talking about, who you think deserves death, the man who is guilty of taking what another man had is you. It's a famous statement, thou art the man. You'll hear that in Christian church probably the rest of your life. That, thou art the man is the famous Nathan to David. You're the sinner, you're the guy. And then there's an intriguing response from David here. And that's where we're gonna pick up the story. Second Samuel chapter 12. Let's pick up in verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin and you're not going to die. So Nathan here says, you're the man in sin. You're the one that I'm talking about. But you're not gonna die, which I think is interesting because it's almost like, you know, David's wondering, is that gonna happen to me? But then Nathan says, but because by doing, but because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. So the judgment because of your sin, David, is that your son is going to die. Verse 15, and after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, 
and he became ill. Verse 16, David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and he went into his house and he spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of the household stood stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused. He would not eat any food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that the servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. The child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Then he went to his own house and at his request, they served him food and he ate it. And the servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. Who knows? Who knows? Now, this is really interesting because Nathan the prophet says, God's going to kill your son because you sinned. And now Old Testament here, we know we live in a day now where Jesus has come. He's died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead for your sins, all right? In the Old Testament here, right here, God worked through the prophets and he came to him. He said, because of your sin, though, to David, pre-Jesus coming, he says, you're going to receive judgment. God's going to kill your son. Now, when God says, I'm gonna, you know, through the prophet that I'm going to kill your son, most people would take that and just accept it. But there's something strategic to me about David. And David here, he looks at these guys and he says, I fasted and I wept. I voluntarily chose to fast. I voluntarily chose to enter into days of fasting, crying out, laying on the bed, laying on the floor, crying out to God, choosing to not eat. Because I thought to myself, who knows? Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. So here's David, and David is the guy who is so confident in God's mercy and God's kindness and God's grace. He's the guy, he goes, listen, I'm the guy who wrote Psalm 17, 8. I'm the guy that wrote, keep me as the apple of your eye, God. I've grown up on the hillside singing love songs to God. I've been the guy, I recorded a whole lot of songs. They're gonna put them in the Psalms one day. I'm the one who declared in Psalm 18, 19 that he rescued me because he delighted in me. That means that he loves me, that he likes me, that he enjoys me, that I'm his friend. God really likes me. I have a conviction, I have a core conviction that he's gracious. I have a core conviction that he's kind. I have a core conviction that he shows mercy. I have a core conviction inside of me that my God delights in me, that I don't even know why, but somehow Psalm 78 says that he drew me out, out of the fields and he brought me into being the king. I remember when I was just a kid on the hillside and I don't know why God chose to 
help me kill the lion and the bear and rescue the sheep from its mouth. But God delighted in me and God showed favor to me. I don't know why God showed up through a prophet and Saul showed up, or, and Samuel showed up and looked at me and said, you're going to be the next king. I was just an average kid. I was the smallest, the, the youngest. I should have never got that. But God so liked me that God sent Samuel. He found me and he delighted in me. He anointed me king when I was just a young kid. I don't know why. I'm just pretty confident that God is kind and God is full of mercy. And I don't know why God chose me to defeat the number one military threat of the day. When Goliath was threatening as the Philistines came to the Israelites and shouted and said, send a man. I don't know why God chose me. I don't know what it is about me, but God showed kindness and he let me go and I defeated Goliath. Let me tell you, there's no way that a boy with a slingshot should be able to, to defeat him, but I defeated him. It was only God. He goes, I know this one thing. I'm confident of this. There's one thing that I'm sure of. There's a core conviction inside of me. I realize that I sinned. I realize that I messed up. I realized that I was wrong. And I realized that then God came and said, all right then, I'm gonna take your son, but this I'm confident. And he's gracious. And I thought to myself, maybe if I enter into a season of prayer and fasting, Who knows? Who knows what God may do? Maybe he'll be gracious. Who knows? David's got this deep embedded in his heart. There's something that moves the heart of God. And even though it's been declared, maybe if I go into a season of prayer and fasting, it will turn the heart of God. It'll move the heart of God. When we look throughout history, when people unite and gather and pray and fast, it moves the heart of God. In our grandparents' generation, there was a great leader. His name was Billy Graham. He's still alive today. Billy Graham, most of us think, Billy Graham, the the famous evangelist, but before Billy Graham was the famous evangelist, Billy Graham was known for being with his friends in California, and they would preach all day, but they would pray all night. And he got teenagers to pray through the night. So Billy Graham at age 75 or 80, he might be this famous evangelist that we go, oh, he must, you know, must have a a skill set that's so dynamic. Or maybe God leaned over the balcony of heaven and sovereignly just chose this vessel. But let me tell you something. The Youth for Christ movement began as a prayer movement with teenagers in California. When they just voluntarily said, let's begin to pray. Let's begin to ask for a move of God. A 16-year-old named Samuel Mills, 1795. He got together with some of his friends in a barn. Started to pray for a move of God. For subsequent years, the Ivy League schools began to experience revival. And Yale, Dartmouth, and Princeton had one-third of all the students get saved. The 16-year-olds began to pray. 16-year-olds. Recently, in the last decade, we've seen a pretty cool movement called The Call. Thousands and thousands gathering to fast and pray. You know how that began? A really old youth pastor in his 40s started to pray with a handful of Asian teenagers in California. Small church, smaller than ours. Small youth group, smaller than ours. Not near as cool of a youth pastor. Not nearly as handsome. 
but they started to pray. And out of this little band of teenagers and a 40-something-year-old youth pastor who's bald with a mustache, a massive revival, a move of God called The Call began to, be, began to awaken over the last decade. I don't know what your expectations are as we go into 40 days of consecration. I don't know if it's just kind of a cute thing and you just kind of think it's like a series and we're just kind of hanging out. But my passion is that you tonight start to get a vision for where you want your heart to be in 40 days. In 40 days, will your heart be tender towards God? Who knows? In 40 days, could God do something in our city? Who knows? 40 days when thousands gather on our campus in June. And we have some famous preachers and some famous musicians come into town. Got an NFL quarterback come in and all the hoopla gets started. What could God do? See, one of, the, one of the sadnesses, one of the sad things that I feel about desperation is that we kind of, we've, we've kind of gotten into this rhythm, you know, where it's like kids come together, we do a conference, it's Thursday night and Friday night and Saturday, or Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and every, you know, youth groups come and then we go home and, and we started to get into this, it's a little bit of this rhythm, like it's kind of what we do each year and we kind of got a theme and then we, you know, we always got, you know, some speakers and some bands and we kind of pray some of these things and we take a vow and we go home, but I, I want you to know when, when God started to burst something in the heart of teenagers and college college kids years ago and we had the first desperation we had no idea what it was going to be it was just a couple days just marked off on the calendar let's just gather together to pray let's just see what god does there's something in burning in my heart that goes what happens if 40 days if you and i if we come before god and we seek him and we consecrate ourselves unto him and we fast something we say god we want more of you god we want your presence we want your power let's not Let's not picture in our head what we think it's going to be. No, 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 no. He is the God who has sovereignly, sovereignly reached over, leaned over the balcony of heaven in years past and ushered in thousands into his kingdom. He is the God who has sovereignly leaned over and literally healing movements. He is the God who has sovereignly leaned over and truthfully, you have all kinds of revivals erupt, salvation, prayer movements, missionaries that go to the ends of the earth. Who knows? Who knows? You don't know. I don't know. But I know that he's gracious. I know that he's merciful. I know that he's kind. I know that he's good. I know that he rewards those that fast. I don't know where you're going and where you're thinking as we start to prepare for this. But could we see, could we see something where a historic move of God takes place in our church? Could we? I mean, maybe could Billy Graham's come out of this youth group and right here, it's kind of fun and it's kind of nice because you're only 16, 17 years old and you know, you got a little peach fuzz on your face and you're barely, you're just a kid. The greatest missions movement in history came from 
band of high school kids, Germany, that started to pray? Who knows? I don't know. When John Wesley and his friend George Whitfield and his little brother Charles, and they started getting guys together to pray, who knew that they would become the great leaders of the Great Awakening? Who knows? We don't know. See, our God is a God that he rewards people that fast. He is not. He, it is not. There is, there, is, there is more to happen based upon people that pray and fast. And you're in a rhythm, you know, you're in this rhythm. You go to church, you go to school, and you check your email, and you do your homework, and you talk on your phone, and you do your thing. And seventh grade turns to eighth grade, and eighth grade turns to ninth grade, and before you know it, you know, you're, you're getting older, and all of a sudden, the rhythms, just the nature of doing life, we just get so used to what this is on Wednesday nights, and we get so used to what happens on Sundays that we just get into a religious rhythm. This 40 days of consecration is to break the rhythm. This 40 days of consecration is to say, God, I want to break my standard day-to-day ho-hum, and I'm going to offer up to you something. Many of you are going to make a commitment tonight to fast something for the next 40 days. My staff is... Our interns are, leadership team is. It's up to you, you don't have to. No pressure if you don't. Some of you, the Lord is stirring your heart. There's there's a desire in our hearts for a move of God, an awakening. It's 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 what we live, eat, and breathe. It's God's presence, God's power among us. And I don't want you tonight commit to kind of a youth group gig, like let's do this as like a project. My passion is that Christ in you, the Holy Spirit alive inside of you will start to burn in here and that you commit to do this because God's at work inside of you. Not because me or Jared or Stefan look at you and say you ought to, but because God's at work in here. And I, we're not going to fast food because you're teenagers. That's the only reason. If you're in your 20s and 30s, we'd, we'd be doing that. But your kids, teenagers. So we're going to fast something other than food. But I want to ask you, though we're not fasting food, I'm going to ask you tonight to offer up to the Lord that which costs you something. I wanna read one more story about David. David's the king here. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24. Verse 18, on that day, Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna and Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with, the face, with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar or a a field, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. And Aruna said to David, 
let my lord the king take whatever he pleases and offer it up. Here are oxen, burnt offering. Here are threshing sledges and ox yokes, the wood. O king Aruna. O king, Aruna gives all this to, king, to the king. Aruna said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, no. So David replied, shh. No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for it. David built an altar of the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. So Aruna said to David, all right, here, I'll give you the field. I'll give you the threshing floor and I'll give you the oxen. And David looks at him and says, I'm not gonna offer up to the Lord a sacrifice that costs me nothing. No, the very nature of a sacrifice is that it costs me. And the Lord stopped the plague, which was what David had come for. Friends, I realize that we're about to enter into this and some of you will take it seriously and some of you won't. But my request to you is this. Don't offer up to the Lord something that costs you nothing. If you're in, be all in. Offer up to the Lord a sacrifice that costs you something. God, I love you more than iTunes. God, I love you more than Facebook. God, I love you more than my cell phone. God, I love you more than whatever it is. This isn't an ending. This isn't the death of your Facebook account. This isn't the end of whatever it is, but it is a sacrifice. It is 40 days of saying, I voluntarily forego something that I value because I value God more. I voluntarily go without something that I like because I want God and I want a move of God more than I want fill in the blank. Tonight, we're gonna commit to this. And I'd like to encourage you to do this with all sincerity. I want this to be a holy moment. I'm gonna pray for you. And then in just a moment, we're gonna take this commitment together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I lift up my friends. I thank you for my friends. Thank you, Lord God. I thank you for their fervent love for you. Thank you for the leaders in this room. Thank you for many, Lord God, that are coming and checking this out, wanting to go after you with all their hearts. God, I pray tonight Lord God, that we would offer up sacrifices that cost us something because we love you so much. We have no idea what you want to do. Who knows? Maybe we'll see healings here like we've never seen. Maybe Wednesday nights will become a place where your presence is so strong that people from the moment they walk in the door weep. Maybe this summer, this summer we'll see salvations like we've never seen. Maybe you'll use tag to lead our church, holiness, prayer. Maybe missionaries that go to the ends of the earth will come out of this group. 
Maybe we'll be a beacon to churches across America, what it means to live in sexual purity, have the word of God on our tongue. Maybe the Bible will come alive to us. Who knows what you'll do? Maybe. Maybe you'll give dreams and visions like we've never had. Maybe there'll be bold witnesses on campuses across the city that stand and declare the gospel with fearlessness. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe in your loving kindness, maybe in your gracious love for us, you'll lean over the balcony of heaven and touch us in a way that only God can. Before you sign your document, I wanna tell you why this is imprinted so hard on my heart. When I was at 19 years old, when I was 19 years old, I went to an event. It's in Colorado, actually. Northern Denver. I was a college kid. And a preacher got up and he said, I believe God wants to do something unique. said, I want to encourage you guys to sacrifice something. There's only a couple hundred kids in the room. The kids started sacrificing things that we would have never guessed. One kid went out and got his hockey stick. He's a hockey player. He said, this is my favorite hockey stick. He laid it on the, he laid it on the started giving up technology. Back then it wasn't iPods, it was Game Boys. Just stuff, stuff. Filled the whole stage. God did something in my heart that night as I watched. I saw kids get pulled away from the little idols, not bad things. But in 1996, in 1996, I saw kids get set free. Sealed my heart for a lifetime. Something powerful happens when we voluntarily say, this isn't a bad thing, but God, I love you more. I'm gonna voluntarily choose to sacrifice something. We're headed into 40 days of consecration. We're gonna pray. We're gonna fast something and who knows what God will do. That's the delight. That's the mystery. That's the epic encounter that we're on with God. And over time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life.